Section 15 of Great Ghost Stories by Joseph Lewis French. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 15. The Mysterious Sketch, Part 3. Schlussel shoved me into a large and very dreary hall, with benches arranged in a semicircle. The appearance of this deserted hall, with its two high grated windows and its Christ carved in old brown oak with his arms extended and his head sorrowfully inclined upon his shoulder, inspired me with I do not know what kind of religious fear that accorded with my actual situation. All my ideas of false accusation disappeared, and my lips tremblingly murmured a prayer. I had not prayed for a long time, but misfortune always brings us to thoughts of submission. Man is so little in himself. Opposite me, on an elevated seat, two men were sitting with their backs to the light, and consequently their faces were in shadow. However, I recognized von Sprechdahl by his aquiline profile, illuminated by an oblique reflection from the window. The other person was fat, he had round chubby cheeks and short hands, and he wore a robe like Van Sprechdahl. Below was the clerk of the court, Conrad. He was writing at a low table and was tickling the tip of his ear with the feather end of his pen. When I entered, he stopped to look at me curiously. They made me sit down, and von Sprechdahl, raising his voice, said to me, Christian Vanius, where did you get this sketch? He showed me the nocturnal sketch, which was then in his possession. It was handed to me. After having examined it, I replied, I am the author of it. A long silence followed. The clerk of the court, Conrad, wrote down my reply. I heard his pen scratch over the paper, and I thought, why did they ask me that question? That has nothing to do with the kick I gave rap in the back. You are the author of it? asked Van Sprechdahl. What is the subject? It is a subject of pure fancy. You have not copied the details from some spot? No, sir. I imagined it all. Accused Christian, said the judge in a severe tone, I ask you to reflect. Do not lie. I have spoken the truth. Write that down, clerk, said Van Sprechdahl. The pen scratched again. And this woman, continued the judge, this woman who is being murdered at the side of the well, did you imagine her also? Certainly. You have never seen her? Never. Van Sprechdahl rose indignantly. Then, sitting down again, he seemed to consult his companion in a low voice. These two dark profiles silhouetted against the brightness of the window and the three men standing behind me, the silence in the hall, Everything made me shiver. 
What do you want with me? What have I done? I murmured. Suddenly, Van Sprechtal said to my guardians, You can take the prisoner back to the carriage. We will go to Metzerstrasse. Then, addressing me, Christian Venius, he cried, you are in a deplorable situation. Collect your thoughts and remember that if the law of man is inflexible, there still remains for you the mercy of God. This you can merit by confessing your crime. These words stunned me like a blow from a hammer. I fell back with extended arms, crying, Ah, oh, what a terrible dream! And I fainted. When I regained consciousness, the carriage was rolling slowly down the street. Another one preceded us. The two officers were always with me. One of them, on the way, offered a pinch of snuff to his companion. Mechanically, I reached out my hand toward the snuff-box, but he withdrew it quickly. My cheeks reddened with shame, and I turned away my head to conceal my emotion. "'If you look outside,' said the man with the snuff-box, "'we shall be obliged to put handcuffs on you. "'May the devil strangle you, you infernal scoundrel,' I said to myself." And as the carriage now stopped, one of them got out, while the other held me by the collar. Then, seeing that his comrade was ready to receive me, he pushed me rudely to him. These infinite precautions to hold possession of my person boded no good, but I was far from predicting the seriousness of the accusation that hung over my head until an alarming circumstance opened my eyes and threw me into despair. They pushed me along a low alley, the pavement of which was unequal and broken. Along the wall there ran a yellowish ooze, exhaling a fetid odor. I walked down this dark place with the two men behind me. A little further there appeared the chiaroscuro of an interior courtyard. I grew more and more terror-stricken as I advanced. It was no natural feeling. It was a poignant anxiety, outside of nature, like a nightmare. I recoiled instinctively at each step. "'Go on,' cried one of the policemen, laying his hand on my shoulder." Go on. But what was my astonishment when, at the end of the passage, I saw the courtyard that I had drawn the night before, with its walls furnished with hooks, its rubbish heap of old iron, its chicken coops, and its rabbit hutch. Not a dormer window, high or low, not a broken pane, not the slightest detail had been omitted. I was thunderstruck by this strange revelation. Near the well were the two judges, Van Sprechtal and Richter. At their feet lay the old woman extended on her back, her long, thin gray hair, her blue face, her eyes wide open, and her tongue between her teeth. 
was a horrible spectacle. Well, said Van Sprechdal with solemn accents, what do you have to say? I did not reply. Do you remember having thrown this woman, Teresa Becker, into this well, after having strangled her to rob her of her money? No, I cried. No, I do not know this woman. I never saw her before. May God help me. That will do, he replied in a dry voice. And without saying another word, he went out with his companion. The officers now believed that they had best put handcuffs on me. They took me back to the Raspel house in a state of profound stupidity. I did not know what to think. My conscience itself troubled me. I even asked myself if I really had murdered the old woman. In the eyes of the officers, I was condemned. I will not tell you of my emotions that night in the Raspel house when, seated on my straw bed with the window opposite me and the gallows in perspective, I heard the watchman cry in the silence of the night, Sleep, people of Nuremberg, the Lord watches over you. One o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock. Everyone may form his own idea of such a night. There is a fine saying that it is better to be hanged innocent than guilty. For the soul, yes, but for the body, it makes no difference. On the contrary, it kicks, it curses its lot, it tries to escape, knowing well enough that its role ends with the rope. Add to this that it repents not having sufficiently enjoyed life and at having listened to the soul when it preached abstinence. Ah, if I had only known, it cried, you would not have led me around by a string with your big words, your beautiful phrases, and your magnificent sentences. You would not have allured me with your fine promises. I should have had many happy moments that are now lost forever. Everything is over. You said to me, control your passions. Very well, I did control them. Here I am now. They are going to hang me, and you. Later they will speak of you as a sublime soul, a stoical soul, a martyr to the errors of justice. They will never think about me. Such were the sad reflections of my poor body. Day broke, at first dull and undecided, it threw an uncertain light on my bull's-eye window with its crossbars. Then it blazed against the wall at the back. Outside the street became lively. This was a market day. It was Friday. I heard the vegetable wagons pass, and also the country people with their baskets. Some chickens cackled in their coops in passing, and some butter-sellers chattered together. The market opposite opened, and they began to arrange the stalls. Finally, it was broad daylight, and the vast murmur of the increasing crowd 
housekeepers who assembled with baskets on their arms, coming and going, discussing and marketing, told me that it was eight o'clock. With the light, my heart gained a little courage. Some of my black thoughts disappeared. I desired to see what was going on outside. Other prisoners before me had managed to climb up to the bull's-eye. They had dug some holes in the wall to mount more easily. I climbed in my turn, and when seated in the oval edge of the window, with my legs bent and my head bowed, I could see the crowd and all the life and movement. Tears ran freely down my cheeks. I thought no longer of suicide. I experienced a need to live and breathe, which was really extraordinary. Ah, I said, to live what happiness. Let them harness me to a wheelbarrow. Let them put a ball and chain around my leg. Nothing matters if I may only live. The old market, with its roof shaped like an extinguisher, supported on heavy pillars, made a superb picture. Old women seated before their panniers of vegetables, their cages of poultry, and their baskets of eggs. Behind them the Jews, dealers in old clothes, their faces the color of old boxwood, butchers with bare arms cutting up meat on their stalls. Countrymen with large hats on the backs of their heads, calm and grave with their hands behind their backs and resting on their sticks of Hollywood, and tranquilly smoking their pipes. When the tumult and noise of the crowd, those screaming shrill, grave, high and short words, those expressive gestures, those sudden attitudes that show from a distance the progress of a discussion and depict so well the character of the individual. In short, all this captivated my mind, and notwithstanding my sad condition, I felt happy to be still of the world. Now, while I looked about in this manner, a man, a butcher, passed, inclining forward and carrying an enormous quarter of beef on his shoulders. His arms were bare, his elbows were raised upward, and his head was bent under them. His long hair, like that of Salvatore's Sicambrian, hid his face from me, and yet, at the first glance, I trembled. It is he, I said. All the blood in my body rushed to my heart. I got down from the window, trembling to the ends of my fingers, feeling my cheeks quiver, and the pallor spread over my face, stammering in a choked voice, It is he! He is there! There! And I, I have to die to expiate his crime. Oh, God! What shall I do? What shall I do? A sudden idea, an inspiration from heaven flashed across my mind. I put my hand in the pocket of my coat. My box of crayons was there. Then, rushing to the wall, I began to trace the scene of the murder with superhuman energy. No uncertainty, no hesitation. 
I knew the man. I had seen him. He was there before me. At ten o'clock, the jailer came to my cell. His owl-like impassibility gave place to admiration. Is it possible? he cried, standing at the threshold. Go, bring me my judges, I said to him, pursuing my work with an increasing exultation. Schlussel answered, They are waiting for you in the trial room. I wish to make a revelation, I cried, as I put the finishing touches to the mysterious personage. He lived. He was frightful to see. His full-faced figure, foreshortened upon the wall, stood out from the white background with an astonishing vitality. The jailer went away. A few minutes afterward, the two judges appeared. They were stupefied. I, trembling, with extended hand, said to them, There is the murderer. After a few minutes of silence, Van Sprechdal asked me, What is his name? I don't know, but he is at this moment in the market. He is cutting up meat in the third stall to the left as you enter from Traba Street. What? Do you think, said he, leaning toward his colleague, send for the man, he replied in a grave tone. Several officers retained in the corridor obeyed this order. The judges stood examining the sketch. As for me, I had dropped on my bed of straw, my head between my knees, perfectly exhausted. Soon steps were heard echoing under the archway. Those who have never awaited the hour of deliverance and counted the minutes, which seem like centuries, those who have never experienced the sharp emotions of outrage, terror, hope, and doubt, can have no conception of the inward chills that I experienced at that moment. I should have distinguished the step of the murderer, walking between the guards, among a thousand others. They approached. The judges themselves seemed moved. I raised up my head, my heart feeling as if an iron hand had clutched it, and I fixed my eyes upon the closed door. It opened. The man entered. His cheeks were red and swollen. The muscles in his large contracted jaws twitched as far as his ears, and his little restless eyes, yellow like a wolf's, gleamed beneath his heavy yellowish-red eyebrows. Van Sprechdal showed him the sketch in silence. Then that murderous man, with the large shoulders, having looked, grew pale. Then, giving a roar which thrilled us all with terror, he waved his enormous arms and jumped backward to overthrow the guards. There was a terrible struggle in the corridor. You could hear nothing but the panting breath of the butcher, his muttered imprecations, and the short words and the shuffling feet of the guard upon the flagstones. It lasted only a minute. Finally the assassin re-entered, with his head hanging down, his eyes bloodshot, and his hands fastened behind his back. 
He looked again at the picture of the murderer. He seemed to reflect, and then, in a low voice, as if talking to himself, "'Who could have seen me?' he said, "'at midnight.' I was saved. Many years have passed since that terrible adventure. Thank heaven. I make silhouettes no longer, nor portraits of burgomasters. Through hard work and perseverance, I have conquered my place in the world, and I earn my living honorably by painting works of art, the sole end, in my opinion, to which a true artist should aspire but the memory of that nocturnal sketch has always remained in my mind. Sometimes, in the midst of work, the thought of it recurs, and I lay down my palette and dream for hours. How could a crime committed by a man that I did not know, at a place that I had never seen, have been reproduced by my pencil in all its smallest details? Was it chance? No. And moreover, what is chance but the effect of a cause of which we are ignorant? Was Schiller right when he said, The immortal soul does not participate in the weaknesses of matter. During the sleep of the body, it spreads its radiant wings and travels God knows where. What it then does, no one can say but inspiration sometimes betrays the secret of its nocturnal wanderings. Who knows? Nature is more audacious in her realities than man in his most fantastic imagining. End of Section 15 End of The Mysterious Sketch by Erkman Chatrian